Hello, and welcome to Iris, and to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. It's Wednesday, February 15th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Let's look at the weather forecast from KCRG. Aside from the gusty wind, today is fairly quiet and should be dry the entire day. Temperatures will slowly fall throughout the afternoon, gradually landing in the upper 20s to lower 30s by late afternoon. Tomorrow, the next winter storm hits. Thursday morning, watch for snow to begin in eastern Iowa. Unlike the last system, there will be no rain or sleet. So this one is all snow. At this time, we expect widespread snow to fall for your morning commute, continuing through the afternoon. That's Thursday. This snow won't be as slushy or as wet as the last one, so it'll be easily blown by the wind. With gusts of 25 to 30 miles per hour expected, watch for the potential of blowing and drifting snow in rural and open areas. At this time, a general 3 to 6 inches is still on track across much of the area, with isolated higher amounts possible. The lowest totals are expected north and west of Waterloo, where only 1 to 3 inches are expected. There will be some cold air right behind this system as well. Temperatures may be as cold as zero on Friday morning, with wind chills as low as minus 10 to minus 15 in spots. After this system passes, we are in line for another nice weekend with highs in the 40s. Sunrise this morning was 7.06 a.m. and sunset at 5.41 p.m. Looking at the stories on the front page, we have Senators Balk at birth control, District looks at conduct policies, Grammy nominee featured at jazz concerts, and we'll begin reading the featured story, Project Encourages Kindness. It's all love. Waterloo Cedar Falls Elementary School students are encouraged to spread kindness. Story written by Andy Malone, Dateline Cedar Falls. Joey Beerbauer wants to replace any negative thoughts kids might have with positive ones. The artist, an entrepreneur, made that his mission after watching a video of teen expert and motivator Josh Shipp speaking, and he's responded by taking actions to help his own community thrive. This week, Bear Bauer rolled out the first ever It's All Love project to Orchard Hill Elementary School in Cedar Falls and Orange Elementary School in Waterloo, as well as at the Boys and Girls Clubs of Cedar Valley. Quote, I wanted to create a chain reaction of positivity, said Bear Bauer, a Cedar Falls resident and 2005 Waterloo West High School graduate. Quote, the mission for this project was for the students to realize what it feels like to receive and give a random act of kindness. The teachers would talk about what it means and brainstorm ideas and then the students would be encouraged to go home to their parents to see how they can further impact their communities, unquote. About 1,000 elementary school students received a gift from Bear Bauer as part of the Community Kindness Project. They each received a rubber wristband with the word original and a thumbprint printed across it in recognition that every human is unique. The gift also included a thoughtfully typed-out message about the value of kindness and a card students are supposed to pass along to others after demonstrating 
a random act of kindness, encouraging the recipient to join the movement by performing one for someone else. In other words, they became kindness ninjas that day and were tasked with spreading as much kindness as possible on their own without an adult directing them to do so. Quote, kindness is our favorite word today, said the first grade teacher, Rene Dre. I think with the physical card, they'll feel empowered, unquote. Orchard Hill Elementary School students were especially shocked on Tuesday to hear that the ripples of their actions could be felt around the world. They learned how the mission could be fulfilled by an act as simple as a hug, helping someone pay for a cup of hot cocoa, or visiting someone who may be sick. At Orange Elementary School, the fifth grade conductor leaders were responsible for delivering beer bowers gifts to classrooms throughout the school. Quote, Hopefully, our actions lead to no harm in the world, said Owen Henry, 10. Life would be much easier and everyone would be much happier. For him, kindness could range from smiling at someone to offering them a compliment or holding open a door. Fifth grader Jaden Smith, 11, noted as well that it's the small things that go a long way. It could be a compliment or a high five. At Orchard Hill Elementary School, second grader Jorno Latrick, 7, was helping deliver the gifts with Principal Andrea Christopher while wearing his Free Hugs t-shirt. He's someone educational leaders have pointed out as an inspiration to his classmates, which has won him the honorary title of Assistant Principal. Quote, you hope they don't lose that card and help to spread kindness, he said. Everett Bolthouse, 7, said he planned on fulfilling the mission and giving out the card. Quote, it's Valentine's Day and... Classmate Nora Tyler's birthday, he pointed out. I like to give out hugs at school and to my family, unquote. Nora Taylor, seven, who has her birthday party Saturday, said she may use that special time to give back and share her kindness with those who attend. I might put the card in someone's goodie bag, she said. Charlotte Reinhardt, seven, noted how she's a hugger, too. She may deliver kindness to someone who's ill. Quote, the card could find itself all the way across the country, exclaimed Robert Goodwin, 7. He pointed out how he plans to stand up for other people as his act of kindness. Next, we have a story from journalist Donald Promnitz, Waverly Shellrock School Board, to evaluate student behavior policy amidst bullying issues. Dateline Waverly. Waverly Shellrock Community Schools, is looking into its student conduct policies amidst parental concerns of on-campus bullying. On Monday, the Board of Education discussed Board Policy 503.1, dealing with student behavior. Recently, issues of bullying and violent behavior by students have been brought to the attention of the Board and parents. Community members have spoken out during the public comment portion of the Board meeting, including on Monday. Among those to raise concerns were Chris and Jamie Holthouse, whose son suffered a head injury from a bullying incident in December. According to Jamie, her son has experienced lingering issues since the incident that have been severe enough to interfere with his studies. Speaking at the meeting, she stressed the need for zero-tolerance policy to be enacted. Quote, 
Unfortunately, my son is still experiencing ongoing headaches, which has forced him to miss class and work harder to keep up on his schoolwork versus his peers, Holthaus said, an innocent student who is now dealing with the ongoing effects of a violent act that occurred at school without any provocation, unquote. Waverly City Council member Heather Beaufort also raised concerns about district policies regarding accountability for student-on-student violence. Like Holthouse, she stated that a zero-tolerance policy was necessary. Quote, students are feeling disregarded and they feel the lack of response from administration and the effect of this of some of these things being swept under the rug, Holthouse said. Quote, basically it says the WSR district is essentially condoning some of these behaviors, unquote. Speaking on the matter, Superintendent Ed Clamforth noted the fourth paragraph of page one in the policy outlines disciplinary measures for an assault on a school employee, but the policy does not address an assault against another student. However, Clamfort also cautioned that matters are not always black and white when dealing with students or adults, and making changes may not be so easy to implement. Quote, words get construed in different ways. Lawyers will interpret them differently. Courts interpret them differently, Clamforth said. And so it creates some challenges for us all when we're writing policy, and frankly, when we're interpreting and imposing, if you will, that policy. I'm not opposed to looking at this and at any changes you might recommend, unquote. Clamforth said he intends to run any possible amendments by an attorney to ensure there are no potential legal issues that may arise from implementation. Next, we have Grammy-nominated Annette Cohen to perform with UNI Jazz Band 1 during Talkhorn Jazz Festival, story written by Melody Parker, and begins with a photograph of Annette Cohen holding a clarinet. Dateline Cedar Falls. Grammy-nominated musician Annette Cohen will be the guest artist for the 72nd Annual Sinfonian Dimensions in Jazz concerts on Thursday and Friday on the University of Northern Iowa campus. The concerts are the perfect coda, culminating the two-day 68th Annual Talkhorn Jazz Festival featuring 63 high school bands. More than 12,000 students representing 1A, 2A, 3A, and 4A schools from throughout eastern, central, and southern Iowa will attend sessions in Russell Hall at the Gallagher Blue Dorn Performing Arts Center. Tall Corn is the longest-running high school jazz festival west of the Mississippi. Quote, we haven't had 63 bands participating in a long time, said Chris Mertz, director of jazz studies at UNI Jazz Band 1. The project is exciting, but not surprising because of what the festival offers to these young musicians, he explained. Quote, we have such an emphasis on the education aspect of jazz. It's not just a place to compete or make a bid to the state championships. Students learn and get advice from jazz clinicians, and we constantly bring in world-class guest artists to solo with Jazz Band One. Those performances are included in the festival and a lot of bands, unquote. Cohen will be featured during performances at 7 p.m. Thursday and Friday in 
Bengston Auditorium in Russell Hall. UNI Jazz Band 1 will perform with Cohen under Mertz's direction, and Jazz Band 2 will open the concerts directed by UNI faculty artist and director Michael Conrad. Cohen has won hearts and minds the world over with her expressive virtuosity and delightful stage presence. Quote, the music Annette has sent us is wonderful and spans the history of clarinet and jazz coming out of New Orleans approach, swing era stuff, and a real affinity for the music of Brazil that blends very well with jazz. The styles are very compatible, unquote. UNI Jazz Studies is the second oldest university jazz program in the nation. A group of young musicians at UNI, then Iowa State Teachers College, bucked their musical instructors and performed an underground jazz concert on February 28, 1951. A second followed, and before the third, the UNI School of Music bowed to the inevitable and established the Jazz Studies program. It has become one of the best-known jazz studies programs in the U.S. Quote, that history is something we lean into. We're very proud that you and I made a home for jazz when musicians weren't even allowed to play it at other schools, said Mertz. The widely celebrated Sinfonian dimensions in jazz performances are included as part of Talkhorn Jazz Festival. Quote, we hope to see, and it seems to be bearing out, that a lot of the competing bands are planning to stick around and hear our bands in concert. In case they haven't heard, we have some pretty good musicians at UNI, and it's a good place to study music and continue their jazz studies, Mertz said. Mertz is particularly looking forward to Jazz Band One's only rehearsal with Cohen. Quote, I always pride myself on preparing the band on playing guest artists' material. For me, the best event of the whole week, to see the look on the guest artist's face when they hear the band for the first time and realize just how good they are, he added. Concert tickets are $10 general admission, $5 for youth and seniors for Thursday, and $15 general admission, $10 youths and seniors for Friday. For more information, visit TalkhornJazzFest.com or to order tickets, Call the Gallagher Blue Dorn Performing Arts Center box office at 319-273-7469 or visit unitix.uni.edu. Now we have the story that appeared at the top of the front page, Senators Balk at Birth Control. Reynolds' plan allows pharmacists to sell pill with no prescription. Author is Tom Barton of the Couriers Des Moines Bureau. Dateline Des Moines, an Iowa Senate subcommittee advanced an omnibus bill Tuesday that includes portions of Governor Kim Reynolds' sweeping health care bill, but not her proposal to allow access to over-the-counter birth control. The bill, Senate Study Bill 1139, provides the following, $2 million to pregnancy resource centers that counsel against abortion and adds programming for fathers additional funding for regional centers of excellence to improve access to medical specialties in rural and underserved communities. The bill invests $575,000 to fund two additional regional centers, increasing the total number to four. 
four weeks paid maternity leave for mothers, and one week paid paternity leave for fathers following the birth or adoption of a child. $560,000 for state-funded family medicine obstetric fellowship program. Expanded eligibility requirements under a state-funded scholarship program for students who age out of Iowa's foster care system or are adopted after age 16, and increased reimbursement for allowable expenses related to adopting a child. The bill removes access to over-the-counter birth control that appeared in the House version of the bill, House Study Bill 91. The bill proposed by Governor Reynolds would allow pharmacists to dispense birth control without a prescription. Angela Koch, with the Family Planning Council of Iowa, shared studies from Washington University Medical School and American Journal of Public Health showing providing additional access to contraception reduces unplanned pregnancies and abortions. Amy Campbell, a lobbyist representing the Iowa Nurses Association, told lawmakers the association is concerned contraceptive coverage is not included in the Senate bill. Quote, we think that, as the governor said, the best way to reduce abortions is to reduce the number of unintended pregnancies, Campbell said. Quote, so we feel that additional access to contraceptives would be a positive with our state, unquote. Campbell, too, said the group is disappointed the bill does not include extending postpartum Medicaid coverage to 12 months. The Medicaid program finances about 4 in 10 births in the United States. Federal law requires states to provide pregnancy-related Medicaid coverage through 60 days postpartum. After that period, individuals may lose coverage in states without Medicaid expansion. Subcommittee Chair Jeff Edler, Republican from State Center, said lawmakers continue to look at state Medicaid data to ensure that we are spending taxpayer dollars correctly because that is a very large price tag, unquote. Abortion rights advocates continued to oppose funding to pregnancy resource centers, saying the centers mislead women about their options and misrepresent themselves as legitimate medical providers. They also note centers are not fully licensed medical facilities and thus are not bound by federal privacy laws under the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act and are not required to maintain client confidentiality. The crisis pregnancy centers are usually religiously affiliated organizations that encourage childbirth or adoption and discourage abortion. They typically offer free ultrasounds, counseling, diapers, and other baby items without cost. Reynolds and Bill supporters, including lobbyists for the Christian Conservative Advocacy Organization, The Family Leader, say the statewide program provides personalized support to pregnant women and aims to reduce abortions and improve maternal health outcomes and family economic self-sufficiency. The governor's proposal would establish fatherhood engagement grants for nonprofit organizations that assist men in finding employment, managing child support obligations, transitioning from incarceration, accessing health care, understanding child development, and enhancing parenting skills.
Subcommittee member Senator Sarah Trone-Garriott, a Democrat from West Des Moines, said the bill would boost funding to a program that has less than a year under its belt and no publicly released results. Lawmakers last year directed $500,000 in state funding to nonprofit crisis pregnancy centers that, quote, have a commitment to promoting healthy pregnancies and childbirth instead of abortion as a fundamental part of the program administrator's mission, unquote. A program manager has been hired, but no money has been distributed to centers. A representative for the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services said the department is in the process of creating a request for proposals under the program. The Senate Health and Human Services Subcommittee passed SSB 1139 on a 2-to-1 party-line vote, with Trone Garriott opposed, meaning it will now go to the full committee. Now, let's turn the page to the Cedar Valley section, and we have a story titled, Man Gets Nine Years in Prison in Eldora Drug Case. The story was written by the Courier staff. Dateline Eldora. A man who possessed more than 150 grams of methamphetamine in Eldora was sentenced Tuesday to serve over nine years in federal prison. Shane Anthony Johnson, 45, of St. Anthony, was convicted of conspiracy to distribute methamphetamine. In a plea agreement, Johnson admitted to being involved in the transport of 165 grams of methamphetamine before being apprehended by Eldora police officers. It was later discovered Johnson had obtained approximately four ounces of methamphetamine from the same supplier before the date of his arrest. Johnson's criminal history included methamphetamine-related convictions in 2019 and 2014, several theft convictions, and other offenses. Sentencing was held before United States District Court Judge C.J. Williams. Johnson was sentenced to serve 109 months imprisonment and must serve a five-year term of supervised release following his term of incarceration. There is no parole in the federal system. Johnson remains in the custody of the United States Marshal until he is transported to federal prison. At the top of this page, there's a great wintry picture of a bald eagle perched in a tree near the Cedar River in Cedar Falls. Now we have a story titled, Cedar Falls School Board Backs Recommendation for New K-6 Literacy Curriculum, Dateline Cedar Falls. The elementary school literacy curriculum is being overhauled in the Cedar Falls Community School District for the first time in close to a decade. On Monday, the Board of Education voted 5-0 to zero in favor of the materials, supplies, and curriculum offered by Brooklyn, New York-based Amplify as part of its core knowledge language arts. The total cost is $1.07 million over eight years. The curriculum was approved after the district's education leaders and the selection committee gave a special presentation about the process and how it ultimately settled on a vision and recommendation. The curriculum will be ready to roll out in kindergarten through sixth grade classrooms for the first day of school next year. A soft launch is expected to happen in April and May. No personnel changes are expected. 
between 150 and 200 educators will be impacted by the change, officials say, has been a long time coming and was a teacher-led selection process dating back to the beginning of 2022. Among the must-haves in the new curriculum was a coherent package applicable across all elementary levels, so students and teachers are all talking the same language. Another emphasis was on developing foundational skills and limiting intervention. Quote, it takes some of the cognitive load off of students if they can first learn to read before they read to learn, said Eric Rosberg, Associate Director of Curriculum and Instruction. A knowledge-building curriculum was another sought-after trait, allowing students to better understand the world through a diversity of lenses, including art, science, and social studies. Administrators considered five really solid but different proposals before making a research-based decision to select Amplify CKLA. The other two finalists, which happened to be costlier, although price was not a lead driver, were programs offered by EL Education and Wit and Wisdom at $1.17 million and $1.23 million, respectively. Amplify was overwhelmingly favored by the district's educators. Quote, professional learning is really what I think tipped the scale. They are able to support us, and they want to support us, said Rosberg. And Amplify has a plan to build capacities within teachers, leadership, and instructional coaches at a rate that's sustainable for years to come, unquote. Teachers also spoke Monday as to why they love CKLA. Quote, my team and I are excited that CKLA is really closely aligned with the science of reading and has explicit phonics lessons and skill lessons that we can use to help our students learn how letters and sounds work together to read and understand language, said Tanya Ferguson, a kindergarten teacher at Bess Streeter Aldrich Elementary School. Sammy Steffensmeyer, a third-grade teacher at Lincoln Elementary School, said she liked how the topics taught are highly engaging. Quote, What tipped the scale for me on this one is when I looked at our teacher materials and the manuals, how when they are laid out, they are so clear for us. Michelle Peters, a fifth-grade teacher at North Cedar Elementary School. Student progress is dependent on teachers having clear instructions on what they are teaching in a super-organized and super-intentional manner, she added. Next, we have a story written by Maria Cooper, Leisure Services Closer to Meeting Its Fundraising Goal for Gates and Burns Parks, Dateline Waterloo. One of Waterloo's biggest projects is closer to reaching its fundraising goal with a recent pledge of money. The City Council last week approved a $500,000 pledge for the Gates Park Inclusive Playground. The money comes from the Pauline R. Barrett Charitable Foundation. The playground will be named after Barrett. The fund was established in 1994 with the Community Foundation of Northeast Iowa. With this money, Waterloo Leisure Services reached the goal of obtaining $750,000 by February. The project will now come before Enhance Iowa Board's Community Attraction and Tourism Committee in March to enter into a contract 
for a $1 million CAT grant, the money still needed to completely pay for the transformation of Gates and Burns Parks, is $3.5 million. A little over $14 million has been committed to the $17.5 million project. The first chunk of money, in the sum of $100,000, has already been paid by the Barrett Foundation. The remaining pledge amounts will be paid in four installments of $100,000 each on February 1st of the years 2024 to 2027. Other pledges have also been accepted by leaser services, such as $100,000 from the Ross Christensen Family Foundation, $100,000 from the Young Family Foundation, $20,000 from the Ike Leidy Fund, and a letter of commitment for a minimum of $30,000 from the VGM Group. Grant applications have also been submitted to the Van G. Miller Family Charitable Trust and the John Deere Foundation. The improved Gates Park is expected to be open to the public in the summer or fall. Gates is separated into two parks, north and south. The north end will have a splash pad and an inclusive playground that will replace the current tennis courts. An amphitheater, basketball courts, and roller skating rink will replace the pool. Inclusive playgrounds are popular in the community, with Cedar Falls, a place to play park on Ashworth Drive, constantly busy. Playground features include structures to be used by people of any capabilities, such as swings, merry-go-rounds, and other play structures. On the southern end, where the former Chamberlain Manufacturing Site sits, will become a sculpture garden. This part of the park will likely be finished after North Gates is completed due to the environmental cleanup needed and to find funding for the sculptures. As for Burns Park, where construction is set to begin in the spring, it is expected to have a six-lane, 25-yard lap pool, a zero-depth entry play pool, slide, new bathhouses, and concessions. And now, listeners, we remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, February 15th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now, let's turn to today's obituaries. Daniel John Baumgartner, 62, of Redland, died Tuesday, February 14, 2023, at his home surrounded by his loving family. Daniel was born October 25, 1960, in Cedar Falls to the late George and Evelyn Taylor Baumgartner. Following his graduation from Cedar Falls High School in 1979, Daniel enlisted in the U.S. Marine Corps, serving from 1980 to 1984. Following his service, he started working for Cedar Falls Utilities as a maintenance mechanic, and he worked there for 31 years, retiring in 2017. Daniel was united in marriage to Linda Pulse on September 20, 1991, in Cedar Falls. The couple was blessed with one son, Christian. There will be a private family service. Dahl Van Hoof Schoof Funeral Home is assisting the family. Memorials may be directed 
to Cedar Valley Hospice. Here, the courier lists three death notices. Charles J. Fetkather, 63, died Saturday, February 11, 2023. Arrangements for Charles are with Haggerty Wyckoff Graurup Funeral Service on West Ridgeway. David Jerome Hagen, 83, of Charles City, died Sunday, February 12, 2023. Arrangements are with Hauser Weishauer Funeral Home. And Anne E. Hauser, 96, died Saturday, February 11, 2023. Arrangements for Anne are with Haggerty Weichoff Graurup Funeral Service on West Ridgeway. Now let's continue reading local news from The Courier. Waterloo School Board approves purchase of technology equipment. Story filed by Maria Cooper and Dateline Waterloo. Waterloo Community Schools may only pay a fraction of the cost for new technology. The Board of Education unanimously approved the $606,053 purchase of new network equipment for six schools on Monday, but the district may only have to pay $90,908 if it is approved for the $515,145 in E-rate funding. Director of Technology Matt O'Brien said the district has been successful in recent years at obtaining such funding. E-rate funding comes from the Universal Service Program of the Federal Communications Commission, which helps schools pay for internet and technology equipment. For wired equipment, the board approved a purchase in the amount of 433,354 from Goldfield Telecom LC. A wireless equipment purchase was approved in the amount of 172,699 from Arcor Wireless. The equipment will replace wired and wireless networks at Carver and Central Middle Schools, as well as Cunningham, Highland, Kingsley, and Lincoln Elementaries. Due to the E-rate process, the purchase will be part of the fiscal year 2024 budget. The board also approved a change order for under-slab pipe replacement at the Central Middle School Remodeling and Waterloo Career Center Expansion Project. The change order will add $16,770 to the project for a total cost of $28.88 million. This is the ninth change order for the project. The addition will not affect the schedule of students returning to Central Middle School in January. Other board approvals include the following. Holding a public hearing at 5 p.m. on February 27th for the 2023-24 school district calendar. Travel for East and West High School's Business Professionals of America students to Anaheim, California from April 24th to the 30th to attend the National Leadership Conference and the purchase of cardio equipment for East and West High Schools from Johnson Fitness and Wellness of Cottage Grove, Wisconsin, at a total cost of $162,144. The appearance at the School Budget Review Committee to request modified allowable growth of $118,676 for costs associated with environmental projects such as asbestos inspections or removal. The amount accounts for work at five schools 
and Sloan-Wallace Stadium between July 2021 and last month. The additional spending authority could be funded through an increase in the 2023-24 cash reserve levy. And lastly, recognizing the Surgery Center as a new partner in education with Fred Becker Elementary School, as well as Cadillac XBC and Maple Lanes as at-large partners with the district. Next, fund for Iowa veterans would be tightened to avoid future depletion. Aaron Murphy wrote this story. Dateline Des Moines. Eligibility and payouts from a state fund to cover emergency expenses for Iowa veterans would be tightened under a proposal from the head of the State Department on Veterans Affairs. The proposal was designed in response to last year's depletion of the state fund, which left thousands of dollars worth of veterans' claims unpaid. Income eligibility would be lowered, returning the threshold to a previous standard, and payouts would be capped both annually and lifetime under the proposal from Iowa Veterans Affairs Director Todd Jacobus. Quote, what we need to do is we need to manage the system differently than what we've managed it up to this point. And I think that's very possible, Jacobus said last month. It all has to do with management of the resources that were given by the state legislature through the trust fund. And we can do that, unquote. The Iowa Veterans Trust Fund is available to low-income Iowa veterans who need assistance making emergency payments for things like medical equipment, emergency room care, dental and hearing care, emergency housing and vehicle repairs, counseling, unemployment assistance, and job training. In October, for the first time in a decade, the allowable spending from the trust fund was depleted. State officials cited a recent expansion of eligibility in the program, increased claims from 2020 due to the COVID-19 pandemic and derecho, and increased costs for claims due to inflation. The commission awarded $632,000 in claims in 2019 and $573,000 in 2020. During 2021, the commission awarded nearly $1.3 million in claims, according to the trust fund's annual report. Late last month, Governor Kim Reynolds approved more than $440,000 in federal pandemic relief funding to address the trust fund's claims backlog. Under Jacob Buss's proposal, eligibility for the trust fund would be reduced to Iron veterans below 200% of the federal poverty level, which equates to annual income of $29,160 for an individual or $60,000 for a family of four. That would return the program to its previous level. Recently, it had been increased to 300% of the federal poverty level. Also under the proposal, payouts would be capped at $5,000 annually and $10,000 for life. And under the proposal, all payouts would be subject to final approval by the Veterans Affairs Director. Currently, applications are considered and approved by the Iowa Commission of Veterans Affairs within the state VA department. Quote, we want to make sure that the fund is there and used for that intent, said Senator Jeff Reichman, a Republican from Montrose, 
who chairs the Senate's Committee on Veterans Affairs, quote, and to spread it out and not see that somebody is getting so much at any given time, unquote. The proposal, Senate Study Bill 1152, received its first legislative approval Tuesday from a three-member Senate subcommittee, which included Reichman. It is now eligible for consideration by the full Senate Veterans Affairs Committee. Senator Janice Weiner, a Democrat from Iowa City, who also sat on the subcommittee, said she would like to support the proposal, but expressed concern that the new limits may be too restrictive. She proposed giving the state VA department director some leeway to approve an expenditure outside the proposed guidelines for extreme cases. A separate proposal moving in the Iowa House, House Study Bill 21, would increase the state's annual allocation to the Veterans Trust Fund from 500000 to $800,000. That bill has passed the House's Veterans Affairs Committee and is eligible for consideration by the full House. Next, we have a story filed by Jeff Reinitz, man arrested for breaking into neighbor's home, Dateline Waterloo. A Waterloo man has been arrested for allegedly forcing his way into his neighbor's home and threatening him with a club. Police arrested Nathan Michael Haber, 37, of 312 Maryland Avenue on Saturday for second-degree burglary. Bond was set at $10,000. According to police, Haber broke the door to 310 Maryland around 10.05 a.m. Saturday and entered with a short wooden club. He threatened the resident, claiming someone he loved was in the home, court record states. No injuries were reported. Next, Salvation Army Perishable Goods Pantry is in urgent need of volunteers. Story filed by Courier Staff. Dateline Waterloo. The Salvation Army of Waterloo Cedar Falls is urgently seeking volunteers to assist with what has become an important community staple, the Tuesday-Thursday Perishable Goods Pantry, with the high cost of living and employment still a concern for many. The pantry continues to see an increase in those requesting assistance. Quote, the increase has been clearly documented, Kathy Ford, Food Programs Manager, said in a news release. Quote, in 2020, we assisted 8,022 community members with 221,292 pounds of food. In 2021, we assisted 9,819 community members with 391,057 pounds of food. As we entered 2022, we would never have anticipated the increase we experienced. 19,365 community members were assisted with 402,556 pounds of food. The Perishable Goods Pantry serves hundreds of thousands of pounds of food from the garbage each year and helps individuals and families stretch their food budgets each month, according to the release. This is only possible through the generosity of donors and the volunteers who give their time. Volunteers and times they're needed every Tuesday and Thursday include the following. Sorters are needed from 9 to 11 a.m. Volunteers sort through the day's donations, breaking down bulk items into family-sized packages. Distribute donations to the correct sections, for example, meat, dairy, breads, etc. 
and also cart fillers. At 10.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m., volunteers begin building family-sized boxes of equal size in preparation for distribution and car loaders. From 10.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m., volunteers will load food boxes into cars. To volunteer or for additional information or to get questions answered, contact Katie Harn, Volunteer and Community Relations Coordinator, at area code 319-235-9358 extension 103, or you may email her at katie.harn at usc.salvationarmy.org. Next, from the Courier's Des Moines Bureau, journalist Caleb McCullough, Bill ends required teaching on HPV vaccine in schools. Iowa schools no longer would be required to teach students about the availability of the HPV vaccine under a bill advanced by Republican lawmakers on Monday. House File 187 would remove the provision in Iowa law requiring schools to teach about, quote, the availability of a vaccine to prevent HPV in grades 7 and 8, making the instruction optional. General instruction about sexually transmitted diseases, including HPV, still would be required. HPV, or Human papillomavirus is a sexually transmitted infection that affects many sexually active men and women. Most cases go away with no health problems, but some can go on to cause cancer, including cervical cancer, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The vaccine for the virus is recommended for children ages 11 to 12. It can be given between 9 and 26 years old according to the CDC. Public health experts, advocates, and HPV-related cancer survivors spoke at a public hearing on the bill, arguing that removing the provision would endanger the health of Iowa students. They said the HPV vaccine is one of the most effective ways to prevent cancer. Nathan Boonstra, a pediatrician at Blank Children's Hospital, said receiving education around the HPV vaccine at school better prepare students to be informed when they are eligible to receive the vaccine. Quote, the HPV vaccine is one of, if not the most, life-saving vaccine that I can give in my clinic, he said. And although all pediatricians are doing our best to educate our patients and families, we only have so much time in the clinic with our patients. Morgan Newman, a cervical cancer survivor, said she wishes she had proper education about the HPV vaccine when she was a teenager. She did not receive the vaccine, and in her 20s, she developed cervical cancer. The cancer then spread to her lungs, she said, and she was given less than a 10% chance of surviving. She has been cancer-free for seven years, she said. It is unethical to not be able to provide this necessary information for cancer prevention, she said. The first vaccine for HPV was introduced in 2006, and the provision requiring instruction about it was added into Iowa law in 2007. While most speakers at the subcommittee hearing on the bill were opposed to it, Lindsay Maurer, with Informed Choice Iowa, a group that opposes vaccine requirements, supported the bill. 
and she said removing the provision would now outlaw teaching about the vaccine and leave the decision up to schools. She also questioned the safety of the HPV vaccine, saying if the bill were not passed, lawmakers should require teaching about the risks of the vaccine. According to the CDC, the HPV vaccine has the rare potential for side effects like any other vaccine, but studies have not shown higher than expected rates of adverse events following vaccination. Quote, it's extremely safe, Boonstra said. It has extremely rare side effects. As far as the safety profile and number of studies that are done, it's comparable to virtually any other vaccine that we routinely give. Representative Brooke Bowden, a Republican from Indianola, said she was curious what other vaccines are talked about in schools and was skeptical of a teacher's ability to provide the right instruction about the HPV vaccine. While no other specific vaccine teaching is required in K-12 schools, the benefits of immunization often are taught in physical education classes, said Sharon Guthrie, the executive director of the Iowa School Nurse Organization. Iowa law also requires public colleges and universities to provide information about the meningitis vaccine. Quote, I don't think that we should not discuss HPV, the risks, and all of that, Bowden said. The question is, where do we begin to draw the line between your teacher teaching about immunizations inside of the school, unquote. Bowden and Representative Annie Osmundson, a Republican from Volga, voted to advance the bill, while Democratic Representative Monica Kurth of Davenport did not. But Bowden cautioned she's still looking for information and the bill won't necessarily continue to advance. It's not the only bill being considered in the legislature seeking to roll back teaching about HPV and the vaccine. A bill proposed by Governor Kim Reynolds, Senate Study Bill 1145, that deals with instruction around gender identity and sexual activity, also includes a provision repealing the requirement that schools teach about HPV and the HPV vaccine. It also removes a requirement that schools teach about HIV and AIDS. Next, under Capital Notebook, Highway 30 Coalition continues four-lane push. Dateline Des Moines, Iowa's State Transportation Commission would be required to prioritize making U.S. Highway 30 four lanes under a bill advanced by a panel of state lawmakers. A Senate Transportation Subcommittee, Monday, advanced to full committee Senate File 111 by Senator Chris Cornoyer, a Republican from LeClaire, which would require the state to make the entire length of Highway 30 four lanes, including a 40-mile stretch between DeWitt and Lisbon and between Carroll and Ogden in western Iowa. Economic developers, business leaders, and government officials in Clinton County have advocated for the better part of two decades for the state to modify and expand Highway 30 between DeWitt and Lisbon to four lanes. Representatives with Grow Clinton County, which works to promote business growth in the region, told lawmakers such a project would spur rural business development, foster population growth, improve roadway safety, 
lessen congestion on Interstate 80 and match the majority of Highway 30's cross-state footprint. Canoyer's district includes Clinton County. Instead of a four-lane layout, the Iowa Department of Transportation's five-year highway plan calls for changing the current two-lane layout of Highway 30 from Lisbon to Stanwood to a Super 2 configuration that would enable the construction of wider lanes, a hard shoulder, and occasional turning and passing lanes. Construction is slated to occur in 2025 and 2026. Meanwhile, work is ongoing to finish four-lane construction in Benton County, which is slated to be completed by next year, according to the DOT. Next, farmland values in Midwest District up by 12%, Dateline Davenport. Farmland values continued strong growth in 2022 in the 7th Federal Reserve District that includes Illinois, Iowa, Indiana, Michigan, and Wisconsin. According to the Agricultural Newsletter, authored by economist David Opendahl of the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. Values for good farmland rose an average of 12% in the district during the 12-month period from January 1st through December 31st, 2022. That is lower than the increase of 2021, which was 22% for the year. Opendahl said the increase of 12% in the district might seem like a letdown after the even larger increase in 2021, but 2022's annual gain was the second largest in the past 10 years. For 2022, Opendahl said Illinois farmland values increased by 14%, while Iowa and Wisconsin both saw an increase of 11%. Indiana farmland values increased the most over the year at 23%. Michigan's values were not calculated because of an insufficient response to Opendahl's survey. Opendahl said district farmland values got a boost from a record year of crop revenues, even though the output of corn and soybeans in the district was down from 2021. Revenues from those crops were up because of higher crop prices. According to the U.S. Department of Agriculture's statistics, the price of corn per bushel started at an average of $5.58 in January of 2022, climbed to a high of $7.38 per bushel in June, and ended the year in December at $6.58 per bushel. Those prices were stronger than in 2021, when corn was selling at an average of $4.24 per bushel in January, rose to a high of $6.32 per bushel in August, and then ended in December at $5.47 per bushel. According to the Agriculture Department, in 2022, soybean prices started in January at an average of $12.90 per bushel, rose to a high of $16.40 per bushel in June, before ending the year in December, selling for an average of $14.40 per bushel. In 2021, soybeans started in January at an average of $10.90 per bushel, rose to a high of $14.80 in May, and ended the year at an average of $12.50 per bushel in December. 
Opendahl said the district's corn yield was up six-tenths of a percent from 2021 to a record 199 bushels per acre in 2022. The district's soybean yield, however, dropped 5% from 2021 to 59 bushels per acre in 2022. For the final quarter of 2022, the October 1st to December 31st, Illinois farmland values gained 2%, while Indiana's values gained 1%. Iowa's farmland values in the final quarter fell 2%, while Wisconsin's fell 1%. And now, listeners, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, February 15th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Remember, you can access a recording of today's reading of The Courier and other newspapers around the state of Iowa on our website, iowaradioreading.org, and you can do that at any time. And we want to say thank you for listening to your IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. <music>